you know that like you feel like that light, like there's a oh, light yeah. inside your heart. Like sometimes it goes way down, like the lighter needs more fluid in there. But that light, there was no way that I was going to be able to stay behind. And there was no way I was not going to be able to make that deal with Andy Warhol. And there was no way I was not going to be able to become a producer. <laughs> there was no way. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over. But let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. My guest is the fascinating, lovely, lively, brilliant Susan Gold. Susan was raised in a difficult and chaotic family. To fully thrive, she bravely chose to meet the demons of her upbringing that were continuing to repeat. Her book, Toxic Family, Transforming Childhood Trauma into Adult Freedom is about that journey. Professionally, Susan became known for attaching celebrity talent to projects in New York City, which led her to produce for television and film and on to Los Angeles. She convinced modern art legend Andy Warhol to do an on-camera commercial for Pontiac. A talent deal, American TV personality, Donnie Deutsch still claims as one of his best. She helped launch Fox News Channel at the request of chair Roger Ailes. And on behalf of Disney Channel, persuaded A-list celebrities, including Ben Stiller, Jack Black, Taylor Swift, David Beckham, and more to be interviewed by cartoon characters Phineas and Ferb. As you listen to my conversation with Susan, you'll hear imagination, play, heartbreak, truth, and hope. And it's all right here, right now, in the Trauma Hiders Club. I'm so glad you're here. Not as excited as I am. I, I feel like I'm going to get a free session off your back, Karen. <laughs> Nothing is for free when you're <laughs> in the Trauma Hiders Club, whether, whether you're actually paying or it's uh, sweat equity. None of it comes for free. <laughs> but okay, you just might at least have a session, not a free one. Uh, so <laughs> question for you, Susan, let's go back to when you were five. Okay. Imagine we had live streaming video of you and we could see what you loved to do the most. What would we see? 
you would see me smelling buttercups and rubbing them on my chin to get the little yellow. You would hear me talking to my fictitious friend, Uncle Eddie, who was always coming to visit. And you would see me petting a little precious kitten Mm, and carrying this ripped up, dirty blanket that was pink with satin edging, right? That was all frayed, like it was some kind of precious object, never to be destroyed. Oh, there's so much there. Uncle Eddie. Where did Uncle Eddie come from? Yeah, not sure. (laughs) Did you know someone named Eddie? There was an Eddie in the family lineage on my maternal grandmother's side. But no, I think Uncle Eddie, and it wasn't Eddie Munster from the Munsters. Yeah, it's kind of really interesting, but I really had to please Uncle Eddie, and he was Mm -hmm. going to judge me, but with kindness and assurance. Wow. So Uncle Eddie was an adult imaginary friend. Mm, He was, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I wonder what's out there about choosing adults as imaginary friends. I don't know. Well, maybe because the adults I did have as real (laughs) mentors may not have been. (laughs) May not have been who you wanted to have as a friend. Right. So this was a safe adult that you created. I think so. So we we would see you playing. We would see the blanket. We would see you talking to Uncle Eddie. Who would we see you being? Oh, I was a little princess because no one considered me as that. We would visit these friends and they they had a couple of kids and one of them had the nickname Pretty. And I was so jealous because my name was Susie, Susan, Susie. I wanted to be named Pretty or Princess or something like that. Yeah. But that was not to be. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. You would be a princess. So cool. I also had an imaginary friend. Mine also was an adult. Shit, I didn't even think about that. Do, 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 do. Oh, that's so weird. What was, who was your imaginary friend? There is no coincidence coincidence today. Why did I not? Maybe I didn't. Okay. So my imaginary friend was actually a real person, at least a real person's name. My imaginary friend was Helen Keller. Oh, wow. So it may have been that I imagined young Helen Keller, now that I think about it, like a younger Helen Keller. Was just learning thinker spelling at the water pump. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But we could communicate. She and I could communicate. Unlike you communicate with your caretakers, your parents. Yes. Yes. Wow. Right. Wow. We could communicate. Yeah, that's really interesting. I. I didn't think about Helen Keller as an adult. Huh. Tell me what would, if we saw you and you knew what freedom was, you're five, you knew what freedom was. Like we kind of knew because we learned patriotic Pledge of Allegiance and we heard patriotic songs and we also heard like war protest songs, right? Oh, yes, we did. What would freedom have meant to you when you were five? Oh, definitely was skipping. Skipping. Everywhere. And I didn't care. Skipping into the church hall. I did not care. That was freedom. Isn't that so great? So great. 
imagining you with your blanket and your buttercup stain and your Uncle Eddie by your side. And oh, how great. Skipping into church. I love that. Tell us, who was your family unit? So it was my oldest brother, my oldest sister, two younger brothers. There was always a cat or a dog around there somewhere, sometimes rabbits, gerbils, etc. And then two pseudo-adults. My father's a genius astrophysicist, but he also had a little affinity for alcohol and womanizing and maybe a tinge of narcissism thrown in there. And then my mother, who could be so incredibly loving and could put Martha Stewart maybe in her place (laughs) with her exceptional creative ability. But she was also soothing through overeating. So she was a compulsive overeater. She was prescribed diet pills, which was speed back then. And I think she may have had a mental illness as well. So she was very volatile. So five kids, two parents, and where did you live? We lived in central Pennsylvania in a tiny town. I don't know, maybe there's a couple thousand people. And then there was also a college there. So it expanded during school Uh, season. Okay, got it, got it. If there was a sign on your house, you know, like you see a sign, at least in the movies, I guess, that says home sweet home. You know, there's those like etched signs or they're made of tiles or whatever. Home sweet home. What would the sign on the outside of your house say? Well, there'd be a cross, you know, duct tape X over home sweet home. And beside it, it would say it's a lie. Oh, but the actual the actual sign was bless this mess. That was the actual sign. It did. You had that. Mm, Mm -hmm. We had um, interesting. I want to go back to that. But now that I'm I had never thought about the signs we had. We had a sign. It had something to do with like he who indulges bulges or something like that. But honestly, I don't know if that's what it said. But my takeaway was the sign said, don't be fat. Oh, yeah. I don't even know what it really said. Like no fatties, just like this. It was so clear, right? That that was the focus of maybe it was the time of, you know, maybe it was that era, but what the fuck? Like, don't be fat. I don't think it said that, but that was the message. You know, that that could have easily been our addendum. Right? Yeah. Bless this mess. How true was the house messy? Or were the people messy or were both? I'll tell you what, like my mom um, was raised in a home where they picked up lint balls off the carpet and everything was in its place, including the labels on the food that were stored in the pantry. Um, So she was pretty much into cleaning, but she learned how to delegate. Like, I think I was five and a half and my note after kindergarten would read, Vacuum the downstairs, carry all the shoes upstairs, put the laundry in the washer and start it. Make sure all the toys are out of the side yard and sweep the porch. Oh, my. Did your brother get that same kind of note? Theirs were usually like, take out the trash. 
Oh, interesting. Feed the dog. While my eight-year-old sister was making the the dinner meal for a family of seven. (laughs) Oh, so, so it was the girls who got the long list. Yeah. The girls got a lot of work. Let's just put it that way. And and we got a lot of servitude as well. Your eight-year-old sister is making dinner. Mm, yeah. Wow. Huh. Okay. So now we're in the house. Kids are working. Well, at least the girls are working. The boys are doing their one thing. And if we were to walk in, if you could pick the soundtrack... It may not have been the one that was actually playing. Like what should, what should have the soundtrack been? Okay. The soundtrack was either ominous silence where you could hear a pin drop, but the visceral feeling of an explosion possible at any moment Mm. was so overwhelming. It would set your central nervous system on fire. Mm. So I hear like that, like a drip or like a, you know, like a clock where you can hear it ticking every now and then where, you know, yeah, something is, something is moving, right? Time moving forward or a sink is filling up just that impending sense of something. Exactly. And then if it wasn't impending, you would hear it in real life. You would hear a slur of curse words and someone's name inserted. And then oftentimes you'd have to duck because there'd be things flying. Could be a chair flying across the room. Could be a boot, a purse. Yeah, all sorts of objects. So that's your mother. Uh, No, that could be pretty much. It could be siblings. It could be mother. It could be father. It could be any one of the above. So everybody, this is the behavior. This is how we express ourselves. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. How does one, how did you, in that environment of threat, how did you stay safe? I stayed silent. So practically mom, I tried to be perfect. Mm. And then I would disappear. I basically came in at 3.30 and I was usually gone as long as I got all my chores done by 4.30 until about 8.00. Um, cause I would go to a nearby town for dance school. Oh, so dance helped keep you safe. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody would have to get you there. It was either my mother or one of a tight circle of friends, you know, the whole carpool yeah. cycle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And when your mother drove other girls to dance, how was that? Oh, she was, she was fun, chatty, asking everybody questions. I mean, nobody knew. One of the one of the girls that was in that little circle, I think she was there for fifth and sixth grade. She actually ordered my book pronto, read it and reviewed it and was horrified because she had no idea. She's like, I envied you. Your family like looked so perfect. I wanted to be a part of your family. Oh my. Huh. You guys did it really well. <laughs> Great show. So dance helped to keep you keep you safe and your parents supported you being in that? Very much so. Like anything, any kind of lesson. Yeah, we got it. They wanted to do what they had not been given themselves. And they were incredibly supportive that way. Drama lessons and piano lessons and, you know, all that extracurricular stuff. 
you know, hands down. And my father would take us to the gym at his university every Friday night. And we'd tramp on the trampoline and throw the medicine ball around and eat pizza. And, you know, he was fun. He was like, rode around campus on his bicycle and, but he was completely inebriated and chasing after anything that moved in a skirt practically since the honeymoon. Wow. Okay. We're getting a good picture of what's <laughs> happening at home and elsewhere. So you have a book and everything is linked in our show notes and your book is called Toxic Family. Which was actually not my title. It's actually the title of my publisher. Mm. So my original title was Magical Illumination because Karen, it's been a long time since I was actively involved in that family. And I have done a tremendous amount of all different types of work, talk therapy, somatic therapy, screaming, animals, you know, you name it. And I feel so different now. I mean, to me, it was an absolute magical illumination. I was plopped in there for very specific purpose. It really has served me tremendously to work with some of the remnants of that family. Also, I was very, very brave. I was a risk taker. I knew no one was going to be there with a parachute. I had to make it happen. And so that actually has helped in certain ways. Yeah. It's magical illumination. Yeah, that got thrown out for the Jerry Springer title, Toxic Family. But that's more like what you're going to get when you open the, the book. It's the story. And then there's a great workbook in the appendix that actually has exercises that actually are helping people. Yeah, recover. I see that. I see that. So the, the full title, Toxic Family, Transforming Childhood Trauma into Adult Freedom. So I can see where there's a nod to your illumination. It is there that doing the work, you can turn this into freedom. I get that. Yeah. 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 But I think, I think we first have to call a spade a spade. That's right. I mean, you know, there were, there were crappy things happening in my twenties. I like your guest, Mark, how to get clean and sober and then work with clinical depression off and on for 10 years and then how to learn what narcissism really was and how it was affecting me in relationships. So yeah, all that stuff had to happen. I yeah. had to uh, learn I had issues because I didn't want to go back into that household and re-examine anything. I wanted to just like, let's move on. Upbringing, check, childhood, maybe not, but. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I hear we're in the middle of Pennsylvania. Let's go to your teen years. So you're a teenager and it's early mid seventies, right? Yeah. 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 I remember, you know, going back there and television was everything. I mean, everything was everything like bicentennial year and friends and all of that. But television, I don't know why. Maybe there was a freedom to choose what I wanted versus what the what the family wanted. What were you watching? So I love to watch Barbara Walters on my beanbag on my belly in my basement because I wanted to get to New York City and be just like her. Did you want to be like her and she happened to be in New York City or was it like, I'm going to get to New York City? I think the the primary mission was get to New York City because for some reason I felt like I would find home there and I would be accepted and I could be creative and no one would stare and gawk. But Barbara Walters was, yeah, she was my hero too, growing up. Had you been to New York? 
Yeah, I actually went a few times because of the dancing. So we did like little summer programs and little yeah. stints and we were only about four hours away. And my, you know, again, my parents were really supportive. They drove us everywhere. And I think my dad took us in on, on that trip. So you'd been, okay. So I too wanted to be either. I w- wanted to be in either New York City because of Marlo Thomas on That Girl, or I wasn't really sure where Mary Tyler Moore was, but I knew it wasn't New York and I knew it was a city. I didn't realize it was Minneapolis. I wanted to be in a city. Yeah, I get that. So tell me about Barbara Walters. What was that for you? Like, who was she for you? Oh, well, it became real. This is so bizarre. I actually did did go to, I negotiated my way out of college, my junior year fall term. It was unheard of. And I went to New York City. I was living in Greenwich Village at 19. So I had a big taste. And I knew after I didn't want to work below 14th Street. I wanted to work on 57th Street in a skyscraper. I was interning with really renowned performance artists and Spalding Gray and Eric Rogosian. They were all around. But I wanted to work uptown with Cher and, and with Diane Keaton and, you know, like these stars. So I did. And I needed money on the side because working a desk at a talent agency was like not all I needed. And I started training people on the side and Barbara Walters became a client. Physically trained, personal training. Yeah. And how I, did that I happen? Would, yeah, my friend was had a little boutique agency, you know, sending out personal trainers and she was supposed to go train Barbara and she chickened out. So she, she called me at like 830 at night and she's like, uh, can you be at Barbara Walters house tomorrow at 630 a.m.? I'm like, oh, sure. I'd be glad to. <laughs> oh, and what was really happening? What was really happening was Barbara was amazing. And she was a girl's girl and there couldn't be anybody more down to earth and just willing to engage. But this this gal was just too starstruck. And for some reason, I I was not like I, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of talent and I just never was. I just felt like these people have to put their pants legs on one at a time in public. Aye, aye. That's like intense. But one morning I knocked on her door at 7 a.m. and she answered and she's like, Susan, get in here. She's like, what's what's going on with you? And I had been sexually harassed. I had left the talent agency and went with the agent I was working with. Um, He formed his own agency. And I knew I'd learn more working with him one-on-one than at the agency. And I was. But he also had a sexual addiction and used to invite young actresses in and ask me to leave. And then he tried it on me. And so Barbara got this out of me and she said, I am coming to work with you this morning and we are confronting this gentleman together. And I'm like, yeah, I, I got it. I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'll, I'll take care of it. So I did. I confronted him that day and he said, do you have everything you need? And I said, oh yeah. And he said, okay, great. Well, you're fired. So I left and Barbara offered me an assistantship to which I said, I can't be an assistant anymore. And with two and a half months of cash in the bank and just newly sober and just out of an abusive relationship where the gentleman held the purse strings, I'm embarrassed to say, I opened my own brokerage firm matching celebrities to brands and was terrified, but ended up Donnie Deutsch, who's a bit of an 
cultural icon. And he, well, he was running his dad's ad agency then. And he's like, you think you can get me Andy Warhol for the Pontiac account I've got? I'm like, let me try. (laughs) So I called and I called and I called the factory and nobody picked up. So I took the dang train down to West 33rd Street and got out and walked over and knocked on the door. And Fred and Andy's business manager answered. So I'm yammering away about why I'm there. And he goes, okay, listen, come back tomorrow, come at the same time, and I will let you talk to Andy. I'm like, okay, great. So I did. I'm sitting in the foyer the next day, like sweating, practicing, you know, my speech, the double doors open, and it's a dark studio. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm like terrified to go in there, but I have to go. Go walk in, and then I see the pin spotlight and the platinum hair going 17 different directions, and this intense pinched face and hands just scribbling, scribbling, you know, pinks going, a lot of pinks and a lot of yellows and three pugs running around the studio and they'd pull at his pants leg and he'd lift them up, you know, against his black turtleneck. And it was like full of dog hair. And I was like, this guy loves these dogs. He didn't care why I was there. He didn't make eye contact with me. No acknowledgement of my requests, what I was asking. Finally, he looks up, he looks at me and he said, now, really? why should I do this? And I said, because you can have the pugs in the shot with you. He said, okay, I'll do it. And that was it, Karen. That that like genius launched my career. I didn't know if it was true or not, but I had nothing to lose at that point. That's right. You had nothing to lose. (laughs) Incredible. I hear so much happening in your stories. I hear someone who, and I'll check in with you on the, on this. Someone whose courage and bravery and almost like, fuck the world, I can do anything came from a home, came from surviving a home where threats were everywhere. And yet you got out. You had for better or for worse, right? Like at the time, we don't know, but you had the courage, the bravery the strategy, the survival skills, get out and apply those to real life. You know, you had options. You could have just, not you, I don't see this in you. We as humans have the option to just fucking shrivel, but that was not an option for you. It's extraordinary. I wanted to shrivel that, that, you know, high school graduation and practicing at the chapel at the university. I was like, shit, I, I'm leaving in the morning. Oh my gosh. And I, I was scared. I, I really felt like I wanted to backpedal, but I didn't have a lot of choice. And I always, I bet your listeners have that. And I know, that, I know you have it. You know that like you feel like that light, like there's a oh, light yeah. inside your heart. Like sometimes it goes way down, like the lighter needs more fluid in there. But that light, there was no way that I was going to be able to stay behind. And there was no way I was not going to be able to make that deal with Andy Warhol. And there was no way I was not going to be able to become a producer. <laughs> It's no way. I was not going to move to LA. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just that. It's like, uh, we talk about, we can do hard things. Look, I can do fucking hard things. This, talking to Andy Warhol, that's not a hard thing. I survived my childhood, right? I survived my siblings. I survived my parents. Talking to Andy Warhol is a, is a conversation. It's not threatening my safety my body, 
my personhood. We can fucking do this. See, there's another plus for growing up in the homes we did. And I'm proud of it. I'm proud of what we stood up for. I'm proud of who that little girl is inside of my being that walked through all that and then walked through the trauma that activated again at my own hands as an adult and finding a way through that and finding the beauty and the grace in that Mm -hmm. and then stepping up and piecing it all together and using it to share with others and help other people and be their cheerleader. Yeah. How did you get to the place where you said, I'm going to go back in? So, yeah, (laughs) you're asking me that question. And I feel like (laughs) I dug around for decades. And as I said, all different modalities. And I think that traditional therapy is very important to understand your story. And somatic modalities are very important to clear the trauma from your cellular being. And I was told in 2007 by an Irish seer, I had a book to write. And I promptly said, why would I want to go through that hell for a PR tool? And then I was told back to back by two other intuitives. And the second one said, you have three books to write. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get cracking before I've got some kind of library. But I was told I had a legacy to lead. I was told my life had you know, meaning and was fairly unique, which I didn't believe at all. I thought everybody has this kind of story. I don't know why mine would be so interesting. But anyway, finally, I just said, okay, you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to see what happens. And of course, I approached it from that bulldog producer, you're going to sit at the computer for 15 minutes a day, and whether you have something to write or not, you're going to manifest this book. (laughs) That always works, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, It got me the first pass, but Mm -hmm. someone very wise said, okay, now take another pass and write it from little Susie's point of view, that Mm -hmm. sweet one inside. And I did. And that's when all the dots connected. It's not even so much that the manuscript transformed, but the connection Mm -hmm. transformed and the compassion that I had for my own being as well as the many players who played their roles to a T with magnificence and the puzzle pieces all connected magically. And I could see how it all came together for the beauty of soul evolution. How the book came together or all the people in your life that they were there for a purpose? All the people and all the experiences and all the circumstances and all the feelings and all the hospitalization for suicidal depression and like not knowing where the rent was going to come from mm-hmm. when I had $13 in the bank. And it, like all that stuff has been necessary for the award-winning movie I was able to live through mm. and evolve. If it was a movie. What would it be called? Oh, it would be called Toxic Family, of course. <laughs> you don't Let's love call that title. I, but you don't love that title. I can tell. If you love the title and also using your business smarts, if you love the title and you wanted to get butts in seats, what would you call the movie? Yeah, you you need to give me 10 minutes. I could come up with Barry's boot camp really fast. There's a guy named Barry that has like classes for the running treadmill. And I knew Barry. I went to LA and he was teaching for this guy, Martin Henry, at 6 30 a.m. And then he went off on his own. And I'm like, 
Barry, here's what you do. You call it boot camp, Barry's mm. boot camp, and people will sign up for a month. Yeah, that worked. Yeah, you you need to give me 10 minutes. I don't know what the movie title will be. Okay. But I think Toxic Family is right for the book because it's going to draw people that need it. People that would respond to magical illumination may not need the story. Right. And they, they might be there for a different reason. I mean, look, this podcast is called Trauma Hiders Club. It is very clearly not for everyone. I was kind of scared when I saw it. I was like, oh, do I pitch this woman? Can I come out from behind my trauma? I'm like, you wrote a toxic family book. (laughs) I think think you're doing okay. Is there something you're hiding right now? You know, doesn't everybody feel a bit fraudulent? Like even when I say I'm an author and I wrote a book, I just noted from my vast meditation experience that that thought go through my brain. Oh, you're not a real author. (laughs) You're really like, wow. Yeah. Pretending once again. (laughs) Okay. But I'll go back to the question. Is there something you're hiding right now? My fears. Mm. I think as a human being, we all have fear, right? But I was taught not to show it because any kind of vulnerability was deadly. Right. It could lead to brutal punishment. So I'm so used to doing what I see as hiding vulnerability. You may not see that. Most people feel, oh my gosh, you're so transparent. It probably comes from my mom saying, you're lying. You're a liar. Mm. You're a lying, lying, lying liar. You know? <laughs> I, I stuck with the, with the question for a reason. I wouldn't ask it twice if I couldn't see what I see in myself. We are so good at pushing our shit down to stay safe. And especially when it's fear, right? We can do the bravest things and compartmentalize the fear. We'll feel it afterward. But if we lead with fear, all sorts of bad things can happen. All sorts of bad. We might request, make a request, like, can someone help me feel safe? Well, (laughs) The shit is going to fly if you make a request like that. Can someone listen to me? Can someone sit with me? I mean, all of those things invite any kind of dysfunction, perhaps violence. So I stuck with the question. And I love that about you. That's why you get the big bucks for what you do. (laughs) I mean, I would come to you for a session in a heartbeat. Well, yes, that is why I do, because I am here for you and for me to see our stuff, to be with it, to be with our own humanity in the good stuff and the bad stuff, all of it. Yeah. And that is such a glorious place, Karen. I mean, that was like a shameful place not too many years ago, but now you see the magic in it, right? There we go. Magical illumination, right? Absolutely. There is so much freedom in saying, oh, right, that's my humanity showing up. Oh, by the way, that is my traumatized self who did that, that shit that I am so ashamed of. But that's what I had to do. All of that. Like, if I couldn't be with that, I would I would be curled up in a ball in a corner. Yeah, but how many of us are curled up in a ball in that corner with that bag of trauma hanging off yeah. our backside that doesn't belong anymore? And we're hanging on, hanging with it. I mean, for sure. And I know you, you call it dumping cement blocks. Loading. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and for me, it was, it's always Robert De Niro in the mission, carrying that bag of stuff up the, the cliff, you know, the armor, metal, whatever. Yeah. That's like the imagery I get, but oh my gosh, like embracing it all and embracing the players. Yes. I mean, you don't, you don't do this immediately. Like I had a period of three years. I think I didn't communicate with my mom. I, I don't see my family a lot. I do see them. And when I see them, I'm genuinely glad to see them, but I'm careful of my engagement. It's taken a lot of work to come full circle and find forgiveness are you forgiving them or are you forgiving you or both? Both. Okay. Both. I'm forgiving them for what I feel they've done and how they've behaved. And I've, I am forgiving myself for interacting and for coming away with the frailties, the fear of abandonment, mm-hmm. the hurt from neglect and abuse and the shame and the guilt that doesn't belong to me. Yeah. When you have forgiven, is that in your heart? Not yourself. When you've forgiven your family members, is that in your heart or is that an actual like mom or brother or father? I forgive you. No, it's in it's in my heart, although I have had very engaging conversations with my mom, you know, shortly before she crossed over and certainly with my dad. And I've let them both know I'm proud of you. You absolutely did the best you could. You played an important role and you matter to me. Mm. Thank you. Really nice. Um, we have talked on the show about it's not essential to forgive your abusers. You don't have to. And I do think that's a really important concept because there's a lot that there's a lot in the universe that tells us I don't even know what the sayings are about forgiveness. Forgiveness is like godliness or whatever. There's lots of quotes about forgiveness. There's a difference between forgiving someone in your heart, as you know, and saying to someone, I I could not say to my father's father, I forgive you for sexually abusing me starting when I was 10. I, I, I cannot, he's dead, long dead, but I'm never going to say that. I'm just not. I forgive who I became because of that. So with my oldest brother, I have an incident with my grandfather too. My dad Googled me like it was a piece of meat, still does sometimes, really awkward, really inappropriate boundaries. But my oldest brother, there's, yeah. I mean, I was the lab experiment in the back bedroom. I did probably two years of work in a group and I wrote the letter And I sent the letter and then I went to see him in person. And he said, that didn't happen. Mm. But if it, but if it did happen, here's why it happened. And honestly, his childhood is almost all blacked out, almost all amnesia. He's in pain. He's not sure who he is. And I have so much compassion for him. And I know that he he wants to do right. I know he would help me in any way he could. He's a hero to the end. He plays that macho role. He wants to protect me, but I'm not going to forgive him for the experimentation or the crossed boundaries. And I still, I don't feel 100% safe around him. I still am cowering rather waiting to be struck or something. Mm, I'm sorry. 
but I also have compassion. Yeah, I understand that. I do. I'm I'm just checking in with myself to see if I have compassion for my father's father. And I I don't have it. I don't have it. Yeah, it's not there. What's been most helpful for you being in the Trauma Hiders Club today? Just opening up and connecting with you and your energy. And then that actually vibrates out into your community, into the listeners. Like I can, I can feel it. I'm quite empathic as you are. And I have a feeling a lot of your audiences as well. So just being in this circle and then finding this safe space, I feel so comfortable. Like I can just lay it out here. Yeah, you can. Yeah. And I'm also really proud of the work that you've done and I've done, like to be on this grounded platform and to be comfortable in and of ourselves and have the esteem to say, yeah, I've been through that. Or yeah, I had that experience. And and you have certain beliefs that I don't share. And I have certain beliefs that you don't share. And we're cool about it. Like we're comfortable. We are not, we are not hiding anything. We are not hiders, except when we are. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Thank you. And tell me, what are you most excited about in your world right now? That I have a whole new trajectory. Tell me about it. Yeah, I had a bad divorce, which we won't get into. We'll save that for another highlight of okay. trauma hiders. Um, I have a whole new life. I lived in New York and I lived in LA and I was happy. And I am in urban bliss. I live in rural Montana. And I came here with a partner who I did not think. I had one date in seven years by decision, by choice. And then my partner and I became friends and it was just friends. And then we both went kicking and screaming and dragging our heels because the universe just was pushing from both ends. Oh, connect, connect. We're like, no, no. I'm learning how to live in a comfortable, loving relationship. Ooh. Yeah, maybe for the first time, it's kind of, trippy and there's a lot to learn to really trust authentically, but that's, that's what I'm happy about. I love that. I, oh, there's so much there. I'm going to, I don't think I've ever done this before. I'm going to plug my last podcast episode, which was about 32 years of marriage. I recorded it on our 32nd anniversary and I hear what you're saying and part, and I talk about in that episode what it is to be a trauma hider and build a relationship of trust, transparency, deep, meaningful, committed adult love. Yeah. I, I think I give kind of the highlights. I don't go that deep into it. It's a fast show, but that's really the journey is I say, I have only one job. We only have one job as partners, and that is to love each other. And it's as simple and as difficult as that. You guys are my heroes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. We are our own heroes too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the new trajectory is love. It's fabulous. What else? is Anything else? That's a big. Yeah. Not that we need anything else. Yeah, no, the, the book releasing and just, you know, shifting to help people in similar circumstances is just a privilege and a pleasure. And, you know, I'm, I'm not 
jumping on it like I did to get into the world of entertainment and producing for TV and film, which feels like heaven. And it's just coming naturally, like people come naturally because they're drawn or attracted for some reason. And it's profoundly healing, not just for them, but for me, like not to be sucked dry, not on some deadline for some EP who's making unreasonable requests. It's just heaven on earth. I'm yeah. In a new zip code, literally and figuratively. It's all, it's so true. And it's, it's, it's in spaciousness, right? In that new zip code, spaciousness in terms of your environment, your geography, and your way of being. And Uncle Eddie's loving it for me. Go Uncle Eddie. <laughs> Go Uncle. Maybe Uncle Eddie and Helen Keller can meet. <laughs> they may be now. <laughs> they may be. Yeah. Helen Keller just happened to live in a, in a lamp, but I think I can release her and maybe she'll go find Uncle Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> He's in the sandbox if she's okay. looking. She'll go looking. She'll feel her way there. <laughs> oh, she won't go looking. Yeah, terrible. Well, this has been wonderful. I feel like you are an old friend, sister, cousin, whatever. I hope you feel the same. It's completely mutual. There was no accident. And this has been a blessing. And I look forward to collaborating with you as we go forward. Fabulous. I love that. Thank you. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.